Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr Louise Tuckwiller, Senior CMO working in two southern regional hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed of a general education encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. I have with me today Dr. Fahadieh, a plastic surgeon working in Sydney and the ACT, and he kindly agreed to join me on this podcast to assist our rural providers. On doing some research, I then discovered he is in fact a world-renowned plastic and hand surgeon, and rather than just relying on Google, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself and your clinical role? Sure. Thank you for asking me today to speak. I am a plastic surgeon. I trained in Melbourne, Australia, and then I did some specialist training, further training in the United Kingdom before I returned to Australia. I currently work, my public role is at the Canberra Hospital, where I'm the head of departments, where we see a significant amount of hand trauma. In fact, we're one of the busiest units in the country. And our hand injuries are varied. So the spectrum can be closed injuries like fractures to brachial plexus injuries to major penetrating injuries and mutilation of hand or severed limbs and uh, fingers. Fantastic. So we'll begin as usual with a case. So I've got a 23-year-old cabinet maker using a chisel and while doing this, used some force, it slipped and lacerated the palm of his left hand. There was quite a lot of bleeding, so I wrapped it up and presented to the emergency department for evaluation. Now for open wounds to the hand, what are the important pieces of information we need to ascertain from the history? As with all things in medicine, Taking an appropriate history is the most important beginning point. So you want to find out the mode of injury, and you've already explained that. So there was a chisel, so we know there's a sharp object with the appropriate amount of force that has been entered. And then you want to find out the remainder of the history. So does the patient have numbness in their hand? So that would depict that there has been some neural injury. Uh, has the patient had difficulty with bending their fingers? That would depict that there has been a injury to the tendon. So if you think of the structures that are within the vicinity of where you've uh, sustained the injury, then you can think of those anatomical structures that can be affected and ask questions in relation to that. But of course, the past history of the patient is also very important. There's a routine formulation. So we always ask the patient their dominance, their hand dominance, whether it's their right hand dominant or left hand dominance. Uh, most importantly, whether they've had a tetanus shot in the last 10 years. And we always ask them about their previous medical histories. And we normally have a routine. So anything like diabetes or immunosuppressing uh, conditions or cardiovascular conditions are things that we routinely ask for. In addition, we also ask about anticoagulation to make sure because that makes a big difference to, to what you might do in terms of surgery, but the overall state of the patient. So in older patients who might be doing home renovations, who might have a, uh, have a stent in and for that reason be taking anticoagulation, it's important that you know all of these because surgery will put some strain on their heart and you need to work out whether anticoagulation needs to be reversed or not. So the whole picture is very important. So a thorough history of the patient is vital. Oh, very good. And you mentioned tendons. What other structures are we interested in assessing or, or are we concerned about with penetrating injuries to the hand? So all penetrating injuries to the hand need to be investigated under tourniquet and in an operating theatre. So that's the first point to think about. 
And the reason for that is that the best way to think of the hand is it's made of foundation, so bones, which, which make the foundation, and then soft tissues. And those soft tissues come in the form of pulleys and ropes, which is our tendons, and vessels and nerves, which supply the rest of the digit. So any and all of those structures can be damaged as a result of any penetrating injury to the hand. And because of the fact that uh, there is a pool of blood and tourniquets, which are required for investigation in a bloodless field, have to be as high as 250, and most people cannot tolerate it more than 15 to 20 minutes, uh, any of investigations of those structures really needs to be done in the operating theater. And if nerve and or artery are affected, the only way to repair them is going to be with microsurgical instruments. So they can't, they're not things that can be done in, in routine procedures. Fair enough. Now, in the Rural Emergency Department, what sort of anatomy should we be familiar with? For example, you know, the flexor tendon, uh, the flexor profundus versus the superficialis and whether or not there's a, both of those in the fifth digit. Are they things that we should have off the top of our head or is it is that more specialised sort of anatomy? That's an excellent question. We are always grateful and somewhat surprised if people know those things, but our expectation really isn't that. Our expectation is to make sure that the, an appropriate history has been taken, that the patient has been appropriately given intravenous antibiotics and tetanus shot if they're required, and that they're appropriately referred to us if they've had a penetrating injury. But for the purposes of our discussion, we know that the flexor profundus is a mass muscle, which means it contracts together, whereas the flexor digitorum superficialis contracts separately. So if you hyperextend one of the digits, then you effectively rule out the movement of the FDP. One of the clinical questions often ends up being that you look at somebody's finger and you say, bend your fingers and they can bend it. And therefore, you miss the fact that maybe one or one of the flexor tendons is, is affected. So if you want to check to see if the FDS has been transected, the only way to do that is to actually hyperextend the DIP joint or keep it in extension and then ask, ask the patients to bend their fingers because by doing so, you've isolated the FDP to the other digits, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that's one of the ones I've always found I need to remember, but at the bedside, it's often difficult. It's difficult. If you see it once, it makes sense. So if you ask somebody to make a fist, the PIP joint, so the proximal interphalangeal joint, is flexed with both the FDP and FDS, right? So if the FDS of a patient is severed, is yes. transected, but their FDP is intact, and you ask them to make a fist, they will be able to make a fist, and you won't be able to work out the fact that they've severed their FDS. But if you isolate it, so that the FDP is moved out of the equation, and then you ask them to make a fist, and they can't do that, then that tells you that their FDS has been transected. Right, and you're doing that by, by extending the of other, the other digits. Got it. Yes. Okay, now that's fantastic. Which sort of leads me on to talking about assessing for these injuries. Often we you know we try and have a look and see if we can see the tendon within the wound, but are there cases where the tendon you can see appears intact, but there's still a laceration to the tendon proximal or distal to this? Absolutely. So both of those things are common. So the first thing to start off by saying is that 
and I'll reiterate this because I think it's important, that penetrating sharp injuries to the hand should always be investigated under tourniquet in an operating theatre settings by a handset. Because, for all the reasons you've just mentioned, if you have a partial transection of the tendon, so say more than 30 or 40%, and you clinically examine the patient and the patient says, yes, I can bend them, and you demonstrate bending or flexing of the, of the joints, they are still at risk of delayed rupture, which is much more difficult to fix. That's one. Yeah. The second thing is that, as you've pointed out, when in a fixed or extended position, you might end up with a laceration. It often means that the tendon has been cut at a different point to the point of entry of the sharp instrument. Uh, so you might not necessarily be able to see things. So even if the tendon looks intact, it's possible that above or below the laceration, the tendon has been transected. Add to that the fact that any poking around in a, a digital wound does run the risk of damage to the digital nerve and arteries when it's not done under a tourniquet and controlled environment, it makes sense, therefore, to have a high index of suspicion every time and assume that all penetrating injuries, therefore, should be seen under, except for, you know, basic pulp injuries, that they need to be seen in a tourniquet setting in an operating theatre settings. Wow, that's fantastic to know. We see a lot of volar surface of the finger lacerations. And as you say, apart from the pulp, do we examine those any differently for the flexor tendon compared to the, the hand lacerations, or is it the same? It's exactly the same. And, and in fact, if you were considering what kind of procedures can be done in an emergency procedure room setting, what we recommend, we, even within our own unit, so within a plastic surgery major hand trauma center, is that only the dorsum of the hand are treated in a procedure setting because an extensor tendon can easily be repaired without a tourniquet. Okay. But on the front aspect, you need to visualize both artery, both nerve, and the flexor tendon. And if the flexor tendon is retracted or is further back or further in, it's very difficult. And if in the process of, of isolating the injury, you damage the nerve or the vessel, then it's very difficult to fix. Right. Which brings us to the extensor tendon injuries. So how common are these and what clinical features should increase our index of suspicion? They're probably the most common. Closed injuries, such as mallet injury, often happen within traumatic settings. So there's extra force, this results in rupture of the extensor tendon, and that's something that can be treated either often if there is no uh, significant fragments or uh, subluxation of the joint uh, conservatively with a mallet splint for about eight weeks. But open lacerations, because under the skin is literally tendon, very commonly the extensor tendon is lacerated as part of any laceration on the dorsum of the finger, which therefore means the extensor tendon, because there are no major structures on the back of the hand except for the extensor tendons, can technically lend themselves to being repaired in a procedure room under local anaesthetic settings. Right. But for a rural doctor not familiar with that, we should refer those Always. We, We are always happy to have referrals but if, you know, desperate measures call for desperate times, then that's probably the one that can be done in, in a procedural. But otherwise, as a routine, they should always be referred to a hand surgery unit. Fantastic. Now, I do find it difficult when patients come in and they've got a lot of pain in their hands and I want to do an assessment prior to, say, putting a ring block yes. in. Assessing for neurovascular damage, how do you recommend we do that? Look, it's very difficult. Even when I see patients myself, 
in an acute setting, it's impossible to work out whether the artery is intact or not. Because the only way that you know that an artery isn't intact, if all of them are not intact, that means that the distal finger is pale, which therefore, by definition, means that you require microsurgical intervention. Yes. So the, the artery is going to always be difficult to work out if it's actually has had some injury. Mm-hmm. Um, the nerve itself, again, until you visualize it, you're not going to know because any bruising on the nerve will likely result in neuropraxia, therefore numbness distal to where that neuropraxia is. And you won't be able to tell the difference between a laceration in the actual nerve trunk Mm -hmm. versus just paresthesia from the injury. So again, for that reason, it is worthwhile to explore those with microsurgical instruments and microscope being available in an operating theater settings. It is helpful to know before you start the surgery, so examining the patient's digit and demonstrating that there is some numbness prior to injection of local anesthetic distal to the laceration is helpful in terms of raising your index of suspicion. But until you've seen the structures, you cannot rely one way or another. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I tend to just get a sterile cotton cotton tip and then yes. compare to the other side yes. to see if there's a difference. Yes. Is that a reasonable very, approach? It's a very reasonable approach. So cotton, uh, or, or even if you get a, a small 25-gauge needle yep. and you say to patients, uh, not, not poke them exactly, yeah, yeah. but say I'm going to, it's going to be sharpness because the pain and temperature fibres are the unmyelinated, thinnest neurological fibres. Yes. So they will always be able to tell, decipher that better than light touch, touch. often or okay. proprioception. Okay. Oh, fair enough. Just for clinical purposes um, when you're examining acutely. And just before we move on from examination, I've also come across the suggestion that when we test for flexion, we we shouldn't do it against resistance in case we accidentally then turn it almost complete into a complete tendon rupture. Is that something to worry about? Honestly, no. I think any clinical history taking needs to have an assessment and that assessment needs to be done so that you can have a clear picture of what's going on clinically in your own head before you discuss and refer it. And if the tendon was going to be so tenuous that it was going to rupture with your examination, then so be it. That has to be repaired immediately. It's not going to make a a great deal of difference from a surgical perspective. Well, that's good to know considering the number of people I've had um, flex against some slight resistance. Now, if we move on to considering how to best clean the wound, what would you suggest we do for that? That's an excellent question. So even when you're referring a hand surgery patient on to a hand surgery service to perform the surgery, often it is very sensible not only to make sure that you've gone through the clinical rigmarole of making sure that the patient has got their tetanus shot and they've had an intravenous antibiotics and as you refer them on to a, a different center that the hand is dressed appropriately it's important to give the hand a good clean because that early contamination is one of the things get that can increase the risk of infection and so forth so as a general rule I used to, when I saw patients in the emergency department, particularly I was confident that they were going to be delayed over a 24-48 hour period Mm. because of what the emergency uh, book looked like. After giving them an appropriate digit, digital block or appropriate pain relief medication, I would give the hand a very good clean. And mechanical cleaning and irrigation and betadine are vital to that purpose. So I would often get a scrub brush 
put some betadine on it, yes. and I would give the hand a very good clean. So to because often these people are manual laborers and they've mm. been working with grease or things like that, and I would give the hand a very good clean, give it a good wash with a bottle of warm normal saline, and then I would wrap it up with something non-adherent, so gel in it. It's good, it's yep. cheap, and available everywhere. And then I would put a moist gauze on it and a big crepe bandage so that it's it's just appropriately kept moist and it's been appropriately cleaned. Fantastic. That sounds great and very doable in our departments. Now, what are some of the injuries that sometimes get missed in the emergency department that you see and and how should we try and avoid these? I think you've actually already touched upon those things. So partial lacerations of tendons. So if somebody can't bend their finger, it's a no-brainer. You do a clinical examination, you go bend your finger and they can't do it, and you go, well, that's ruptured, so we'll transect it, so we're going to have to fix it. But partial lacerations are difficult because patients, they will complain of pain, but you put that pain down to the fact that they've got a laceration as opposed to the fact that they've got pain because they've got a partial tendon laceration, Mm. which is one of the things that you can get. Um, Occasionally, because as a result of the injury, you've got pain, nerve injuries can be missed. So we do see that from time to time. But I guess more importantly, arterial damage, digital arterial damage, and that does happen from time to time. The nerve is obviously above the artery. Yes. So it's less common to have a isolated arterial injury without a nerve injury, but it does happen, um, is important, particularly in colder environments, because we know if the artery is not repaired, the patient is much more likely to end up with cold intolerance during winters. Mm. So again, another reason why exploration of these things with appropriate instruments and surgical skill sets available under tourniquet is really vital. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Thinking about that, with doing your ring blocks, there's a lot of stuff in the podcast world at the moment about, oh, it's actually okay to use, you know, lignocaine with adrenaline. I've grown up always using plain lignocaine. And we have patients who have got vascular disease and other risk factors. What are your thoughts on using? Look, this is interesting because it used to be a very controversial topic because the bulk of the clinical data that comes from don't use adrenaline, dates back to the 1930s or 40s. Mm -hmm. And there's a question as to whether their local anesthetic may have gone off, and that's actually what caused the toxic effects. More recently, in the last, I guess, 10, 15 years, uh, it has become, in many hand surgery units, routine to operate on the digits with local anesthetic that has adrenaline without an arm tourniquet because it gives you appropriate vasoconstriction to be able to see all of the structures. So the the upshot of it is that from a physiological and pharmacological perspective, it's unlikely that in a normal patient, you using an appropriate lignocaine with adrenaline is going to result in the finger falling off. Right. However, if you are going to use that and the finger goes pale, until you see that finger go pink again, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to feel comfortable about letting the patient go home. And of course, you want to make sure you do that in a setting that if something does go wrong, you have appropriate services so that you can ask them to come and have a look to see if there's anything wrong. Because you know sometimes we can put things like papavirin, which are vasodilators, yes. um, to, to confirm for ourselves that the vessels are flowing. So I guess the The upshot of what I'm saying is that even though from a pharmacological perspective and increasingly from a clinical perspective, we don't see any of those complications that we used to be taught as medical students or junior registrars, which is the finger will fall off if you use adrenaline. Mm. Um, 
the safest option is to continue to just use plain local anesthetic yes. uh, for that purpose. And if you're going to use it, I would suggest that you mix a bit of lignocaine and rupivacaine because the rupivacaine is longer lasting, yes. but it takes 10 minutes to work, up to 10 minutes to work. So you won't be able to access the wound immediately, whereas lignocaine gives you, gives you an immediate effect. So if you're going to do something on the local anesthetic, if you inject lignocaine and rupivacaine together, you've covered long-term pain relief for right. three or four hours longer, yes. but you also have the ability because of the lignocaine to immediately investigate the wound. Oh no, that's, that's a great point. Now, I usually get an x-ray of the hand for, or the finger, depending, um, or for uh, the most superficial injuries. Is, is that advisable? Absolutely. Absolutely. You often see the strangest things. If you practice, as you know yourself, mm-hmm. medicine long enough, you can never be surprised, irrespective of how long you've been doing whatever branch of mm-hmm. medicine that you're practicing. And any basic investigations which don't cause the patient harm, which do not carry a significant risk, which are standard, like an X-ray, yes. can occasionally demonstrate the strangest things, and sometimes by accident. Okay. So sometimes, for example, we see people who have had a basic injury who've ended up with a fracture that wouldn't have been picked up because they've had an endochondroma, which ordinarily wouldn't have been picked, yes. but because of a simple injury, it got picked and they had an X-ray and so forth. So it's absolutely sensible and reasonable to do a plain X-ray investigation. Fantastic. And what about antibiotics? When do we need to use those? And if so, when do we need to use intravenous versus oral? Good question. I guess the correct answer is that in any contaminated wound, which basically means any wound which has been inflicted to a patient outside an operating theatre, by definition, you're Mm -hmm. going to have significant contamination, so it's sensible to use antibiotics. The question of between oral and intravenous I guess comes down to the clinical nature of it. So if you've got a nail bed injury, Mm. you're not going to put a drip in the patient. Mm. So if you're not going to put a drip in the patient, it's entirely reasonable to give them oral antibiotics. But if you've got a laceration in the digit and for whatever reason you've seen the patient, it's probably not unreasonable to put a drip in and give them a standard intravenous dose. The reason being, obviously, intravenous doses have better bioavailability. The standard antibiotics that we use, cafezolan, Mm. Um, uh, penicillin-based antibiotics. But even then, when you refer them on to another unit, particularly if it's going to be 24 or 48 hours later because you dress the wound and mm. the patient is managed as, as an outpatient setting, is entirely reasonable to pull the drip out and then just give them some oral keflex or, or oral augmentin and send them off. Okay. And that's often what, what we end up doing. Yes. They're a decent size, two grams of IV keflexol, exactly. and then off they go with their orals. Perfect. So, lovely. Now, what hand lacerations, we've gone through quite a few, would be suitable for suturing in a rural emergency department? I think what we discussed before is is reasonable. So I think any laceration that, so provided the emergency physician is comfortable with basic suturing techniques and basic surgical techniques, I think it's entirely reasonable that laceration over the dorsum of the hand, where you can identify the structures and see them. So you can see the extensor tendons there. And you are confident that the extensor tendons are not damaged, can be sutured up. Okay. Yep. I think lacerations over the dorsum of the digits, where you have, again, identified that the extensor tendon has not been damaged, entirely reasonable to do. Great. 
And you can do those often with a ring tourniquet. So you can get a glove and you make sure that you cut the glove first, because otherwise there are well-known documented cases where the glove has been left as a tourniquet yes. and digit has mm-hmm. fallen off. So definitely must do that. But uh, tourniquet and have a look. And if the tendon looks fine, then it's entirely reasonable to do that. In relation to the nail beds, mm. that's a different question because if the nail bed is not appropriately approximated generally with microsurgical techniques and tiny sutures with loops, you're more likely to end up with a nail bed injury. Yes. And that means a long-term alteration in the shape of the nail, Mm -hmm. which is more significant to some people than others. So I think that's where individual clinical practice uh, is very important. So you work out whether this is, you know, um, for argument's sake, sake, some 60-year-old man Mm -hmm. Uh, in a farm who doesn't really care if his nail bed doesn't look um, versus a 21-year-old, for example, young woman to whom a, a the shape of the nail might be important. So it's very important to judge that, to yes. work out whether you should send somebody away for, I don't know, what might be two or 300-kilometer drive for surgical services as to whether they want to. We often say that it's important that you have that discussion with the patient. You say, yes. look, we can fix this, but it might result in nail plate deformity and if that's okay with you that's fine because that can be done you remove the nail plate under uh, steroid and you can do it in a procedural but if not then you should refer them on. okay i mean i try and often look at the finger side on to see whether i think the nail's actually been avulsed yes is that an important clinical i I think so so ordinarily what we do is if we think the patient has had a nail bed injury Mm. and some of the nail is left some of that nail will have to be taken out yes. before a nail bed repair is done. Yep. And then that nail bed, nail plate that is taken off is often cleaned up and trimmed and put back in so that the nail fold doesn't stick down. Right. And that helps keep the fold open. Yes. And then we always tell them that it'll take 6 to 12 weeks for the nail plate to grow back and often the first one will fall out and then that'll happen. So that, that assessment is important uh, in the overall scheme of how the patient is and what's important to them. Fantastic. No, that's great. Now, if a patient brings a finger in post-amputation, should we attempt to clean this and what should we store it in? Good question. So often we see these very appropriately treated. So the first thing that happens is somebody calls us, sends us a picture and says, we've got this guy often men but women, Mm. um, who've got a fingertip injury and you take the history, make sure you know which hand is dominant, whether the patient has had tetanus shot, give them intravenous antibiotics, do Mm. they have any other background, previous medical histories. Vitally, if the patient is a smoker or a non-smoker, because we know 100% of replants that continue to smoke fall off. Mm. So that's an almost contraindication for performing a a replantation surgery. And that's a discussion that you need to have with the patient. Uh, And then... The, the question ends up being, how do you clean it for referral? So for mm. us, it's lovely if you can give the distal part mm-hmm. a clean, if you've taken an X-ray of the distal part so we can right. see what the bones look like because yes. that structural integrity or how we are going to go about fixing it remains a vital part of what the replant will look like. Okay. Uh, and then once you've, uh, I guess, given it a clean with betadine, yep. you, you wrap it up in a moist normal saline gauze, yes. put it in a plastic bag, yes. and then put that plastic bag, which is should be impenetrable, in an ice slurry. Right. What yes. you shouldn't do, and mm-hmm. very rarely this uh, happens, is put the digits 
in ice because that also gives it a frozen injury on top of yes. the severed injury that they've already had. Yes. Oh, no, that, I think that's that's great advice. Um, now, just uh, reg- turning back a bit more to the nail injuries. Yes. We've got children um, not infrequently getting their fingers caught yes. indoors, sustaining sort of a crush injury to the finger or the nail. How should we best assess and manage these injuries? That's a very good question. Look, bulk of nail bed, closed nail bed injuries, that, that is that there's no laceration on the finger, so there's just a subungual hematoma. Mm. Over 80% of them end up being fine without any nail plate deformity in the long term. Okay. So that's a reassuring statistic to have in the back of your mind. Yep. But obviously with pediatrics, we're always, always much more cautious. Mm. And certainly when they've got a laceration, we always treat them in an operating theatre settings. Yes. And we always give them a boxing glove uh, dressing after the surgery. Right. Yeah. So that they can't get to it yeah. for about a week. Okay. So it is vital that you refer that to a service that can, because they, they won't hold still. Yeah. So you need to anesthetize them. Yeah. Uh, so you need to, it's vital that you're, they are referred to a service that can provide a, a pediatric anesthetic and pediatric hand surgery. Okay. And obviously we do that here. Okay. Oh, fair enough. And with nail injuries with associated with a distal phalanx fracture, I would normally give those antibiotics. Is that yes, standard, standard, fantastic. All right, we'll now move on to our second case. Now, this is a 15-year-old girl who was playing basketball and sustained a hyperextension injury to her right index finger. She's tenderness and bruising, most marked around the proximal interphalangeal joint and middle phalanx. Now, how should we go about assessing this injury? So all of the f- things that we discussed before, mm-hmm. so taking history, which hand is dominance, the mode of injury makes a difference. So you've mm-hmm. noticed here it's a hyperextension injury as opposed to a head-on injury, which mm-hmm. often happens in sports. And they often have a slight difference in terms of the final clinical setting and outcome. So a head-on ball injury to the digit, even though it sounds the same, often ends up with a significant fracture dislocation of the PIP joint, which can be a catastrophe for that joint. Right. Whereas a hyperextension injury often is a volar plate injury. That is the volar thickening of the capsule of the PIP joint being pulled off in a hyperextension injury. Yes. And that often can be treated conservatively. Vital to that is not just a clinical examination, but as you said before, taking an X-ray. So you take an X-ray and you can often see whether the entire articular surface of the joint has been affected or a small uh, fragment of the bone surface has been taken off with a volar plate coming off because the volar plate, as it is pulled off, often pulls a small chunk of bone off as well. Right. The important thing to remember about the PIP is, and I discuss this all the time with, with the patients themselves, think of it as the most sensitive joint in the body. Mm-hmm. You sneeze at it funny and it'll go stiff mm-hmm. and it'll never go back to its full range of motion, okay. particularly in adults. So in a 15-year-old, your, your chances of recovery are significantly more. But the f- principles that you need to follow is take a history, do an examination, get an x-ray, and always seek advice. Because if in in one in a hundred case where something is missed, this injury is so significant that they will have to put up with a digit that will not make a fist. Because if you have a look at my fist as I'm making a fist, you can see the bulk of the function of the fist is at the MCP and the PIP. The DIP's contribution is 10-15% at maximum. Mm. Whereas if the PIP joint can't move, the hand is very much hampered in terms of function. So in principle, 
if it's just a roller plate injury, the trade-off is between movement mm -hmm. and stiffness. Yes. So if you keep the hand still, then as the roller plate cicatrizes down, that roller aspect will harden up and scar and the joint will not move and will become stiff. Yes. If you move it too much, then you run the risk of it not healing and therefore the joint being unstable. So ordinarily what we do is we have a blocking splint, so we block the joint on its extensor surface so that it can no longer hyperextend, right. but we intensely move it in its flexor range of motion to make sure that it gives the volar plate an opportunity to heal back to where it came from, yes. but also doesn't leave it so long so that the capsule and the joint become very scarred. So intense physiotherapy after dorsal blocking splint and movement is vital. Okay. And if clinically we felt that it was a volar plate injury, but the yes. x-ray didn't report a avulsion yes. you know, flake, would you just manage the same? Absolutely. Great. Just because you don't have a fragment doesn't mean that the soft tissue ligaments didn't get pulled off. Okay. And what degree of flexion should we have these splints? So the, the key to this is to make sure that the finger cannot hyperextend. Okay. So the, the, the resting position for the PIP and the DIP is straight. Mm -hmm. The resting position for the MCP is at 90 degrees, mm -hmm. and the resting position of the wrist is, is probably about 30 degrees extension. Right. So that, that's the resting position. So if you have a dorsal blocking splint, so it, it stops the digit from extending, yes. and you can have that, the hand in the resting splint, the resting position that we talked about, yep. and mobilizing in that resting splint right. passively and actively, yes. then you've done everything that you need to do. Right. And of course, the patient then needs to be referred on to the appropriate hand therapist or physiotherapist who, who, who will continue to monitor the patient and make appropriately a finger-based splint for them. Okay. Now, do we need to refer these patients to the plastic surgical service or can they be managed in the rural setting with such splinting and physiotherapy review? That's a very good question. I think if you feel confident, it's mm -hmm. entirely reasonable to do that. Okay. But... What you want to remember is, is going back to what we went to before, which is you don't ever want to miss something more complicated or complex yes. with the PIP joint because there is no fixing it going back. Right. So it is entirely reasonable to just seek some guidance. Right. Even if it is you call the unit and say, look, this is what I've seen. This is what I'm going to do. Are you happy with that? Okay. Do you want to see the patient? Sure. And then that way, you've done all of the right things and the onus of responsibility then goes on to the hand surgery service that is your referral base yes. to say, no, I'm happy with your management and you can continue to do that and in future you don't need to call me about these things. Or they say, no, we want to see all of these things just to make sure that nothing unusual has happened. Fantastic. Now, would you have any final tips regarding the management of, of hand injuries in our rural departments? Look, I think high index of suspicion. In my experience, all hand surgeons and all hand surgery services are very happy to, to give advice, mm -hmm. uh, very happy to listen to what you have to say, and increasingly with the ability to transfer data digitally, whether it's a photograph of an x-ray, photograph of an injury, yes. it's much easier 
to seek advice. I mean, when I was a registrar, people would call and they would describe these things and you couldn't text pictures mm, and things mm. like that. Whereas now it is. So we regularly have phone conversations and then have pictures sent to us. Um, and, and, and I think there is nothing lost from seeking advice, even if it is to reassure what decision you've made is the correct one. Mm. It always helps. Yes. And, you know, that's been my experience basically, you know, I usually give the registrar a call yes. and have a chat and, yes. you know, review it, and I've found them extremely helpful. Yes. And that's been a great service. So um, now the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute and its clinical tools, musculoskeletal orthopaedic section, does include a hand injury guide, which is a great yes. resource. So thanks so much today, Dr. Fahadieh, for giving us your time and, and sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was great.